Let's pretend it's the end of this whole ugly story. We vanquished the foe and we triumphed in glory. There's nothing but rainbows and blue skies ahead. Hallelujah, amen, it's the end. We threw off the yoke and we broke all the shackles. We tore down the walls and we burned down the castle. The oppressors all scattered and naked they fled. Hallelujah, amen, it's the end. Welcome to Before the Future Came. We're looking at the ideals of Star Trek as we voyage from one episode or film to the next, following a breadcrumb trail of motifs. This month, we're talking about the movie First Contact, which premiered in 1996. First Contact is the first fully next-generation movie following Generations, which paired Captains Picard and Kirk. I'm Lucy, and Captain, I believe I am feeling anxiety. I'm Gregory, an unstable element in a critical situation. And I'm Melissa, an imperfect being created by an imperfect being. The way this podcast is going to work is that we're going to discuss one work each time, a movie, a TV show episode, or maybe even a licensed novel or video game. We'll talk about the ideals we see in them, plus just stuff we find cool. Our title comes from the third episode of Star Trek Discovery, Context is for Kings, where Captain Lorca mentions what things were like before the future came and hunger and need and want disappeared. We're going to explore what it means to have these stories about a world purportedly without hunger, need, and want. At the end of each episode, we'll find out what we're discussing next time. We'll take turns picking, and each time it'll be a work that somehow relates to what we discussed this time. The connection will be something that shows up in both things, but not something as big as a main character. So we wouldn't use Geordi LaForge or the USS Voyager as a connection, but we might pick something that also has Q in it, or the planet Risa, or a plotline about investigating a mysterious distress signal. Since this is the first episode we're releasing, we're starting fresh, so we're picking a work about a historic first. Today we're watching First Contact. Gregory picked it. So they're going to give us a summary of the film in their own words. All right. Captain's Log. Stardate 50893.5. The Borg Collective, a group of conquering cyborg zombies with a hive mind, are attacking Earth with a single incredibly powerful cube ship. The newly constructed Enterprise-E is sidelined because its captain, Jean-Luc Picard, was abducted six years ago during the last Borg invasion and turned into Locutus, an admiral and mouthpiece for the Collective. He's better now, but Starfleet thinks his judgment will be distorted by his past. And they're right. After the Borg <laughs> win one battle, he disobeys orders and rushes to Earth to help in the final defense. They arrive and rescue Lieutenant Commander Worf on loan from Deep Space Nine. Picard just declares he's taking command of the fleet and has them shoot the cube's weak point, which it has and he knows about because of the Borg voices in his head. The cube launches a sphere as it explodes. While the crew is teasing Worf, the sphere makes a time portal and the Enterprise is caught in its wake. The crew sees the Earth suddenly ruined and covered in Borg, so they decide to follow the sphere and prevent them from changing history. Stardate, April 4th, 2063. 
In a crappy town in northern Montana, we meet a drunk Dr. Zephram Cochran and his right hand, Lily Sloan, preparing for a test flight the next day. The town is attacked from space for a bit before the Enterprise arrives and blows up the sphere. The crew realizes that the Borg came here to stop Cochran's test flight of the Phoenix, Earth's first ship with a warp drive, which is supposed to lead to first contact. Picard beams down to investigate with ship doctor Beverly Crusher and the android Data. Sloan shoots at them, thinking they're behind the attack, and Data, who's bulletproof, confronts her. She faints from radiation poisoning from the damaged Phoenix. Crusher takes Sloan to sickbay, while the chief engineer, Lieutenant Commander Jordy LaForge, who now has robot contact lenses instead of his gold visor, beams down to help fix the Phoenix, with an ominous comment about it being weirdly warm on the Enterprise. <laughs> it turns out that some Borg from the Sphere escaped the Enterprise and have set up shop on Deck 16 in Central Engineering. The movie divides into two plot lines. Crusher, Data, Picard, Worf, and Sloane do action movie stuff to stop the Borg from taking over the Enterprise, while the other characters stay on Earth to try and make the warp test happen. Data is captured in a failed raid on engineering. Sloane, who slipped away from sickbay during an evacuation, takes a fleeing Picard hostage. Data meets the Borg Queen, who is a sexy goth lady. Picard shows Sloane <laughs> the Earth from space and wins her trust. The queen grafts skin onto Data's arm and then blows on it sexily, which seems to make him come. <laughs> it really does. Yeah, it's, it's, it seems to be what happens in the film. <laughs> First officer, Commander William Riker, finds ship's counselor, Commander Deanna Troy, drunk with Cochrane at the town bar. With LaForge, they tell him the truth, explaining that his warp test will be detected and lead to first contact with aliens and to paradise on Earth within 50 years. Picard and Sloane lure some Borg into a film noir holodeck simulation, where Picard kills a bunch of them with a Tommy gun while screaming. Picard pulls a thumb drive from a corpse and finds out the Borg are trying to turn the deflector dish into a beacon to summon old-timey Borg to Earth. As the Enterprise crew members fixing the Phoenix just casually wander around town talking about advanced technology, LaForge psychs Cochrane out with Tales of the Future, so he runs off to the woods to get drunk, at which point Riker shoots him. Picard, Worf, and Lieutenant Hawk go on a spacewalk to detach the deflector dish. I haven't mentioned Lieutenant Hawk yet because he has big, gonna-get-assimilated energy. Anyway, they get attacked <laughs> by Space Borg, and he gets assimilated into a zombie, and attacks them and gets killed, but they manage to jettison the dish. Data is getting more and more gross human skin of unknown origin grafted on his body. Wait, you thought it was gross? If for human skin, yes, it is gross. It's got weird ragged edges and stuff. And whose is it? I mean, it's Brent Spiner's skin. I just think it's kind of mean to call it gross. Data is getting more and more gross human skin of unknown origin grafted onto his body. He tries to escape, but he gets cut and the pain overwhelms him, so he fucks the Borg Queen instead. Cochrane prepares for launch, with Riker and LaForge as co-pilots. Cochrane finally explains that he's in it for the money. He plays some rock music, and they launch. Worf and Picard argue about whether to blow up the whole ship. Sloane yells at Picard and calls him Ahab, and he realizes he's motivated by revenge, so he sets the auto-destruct sequence. Picard uses Borg telepathy to call out to Picard, Zelda-style, so he sends the rest of the crew off on escape pods and goes to engineering. He has a reunion with the Borg Queen and finds out Data, who's now a Frankenstein, is her new boyfriend. Data turns <laughs> off the auto-destruct to pretend to be a traitor so he can miss the Phoenix with some torpedoes and kill all the Borg with some comic book acid that got mentioned earlier. Picard survives by climbing on some cables. 
The Phoenix goes to warp, and Cochrane is hit by the overview effect by seeing Earth at a distance, turning him noble. Everyone goes back to Montana, and the alien ship shows up. Turns out it's Vulcans. Sloane is the only one to see the Enterprise time travel back to the future as Cochrane introduces the Vulcans to a terrible song by Roy Orbison. Ah, that was a long one. They're not all going to be that long. This is a complicated movie. Beautiful. Very hard on both Roy Orbison and Brent Spiner there, though. I don't... I, it's it's weird pink skin that's, like, grafted onto his body, and they do weird ragged things to the edges of it with makeup. Yeah. yeah. To be fair, he's got weird makeup android skin, and that is Brent Spiner's skin juxtaposed with it. <laughs> so... It's also probably not entirely his skin for most of the shots. It's probably fake skin for the arm part. I feel like that face, the face is him. Like, that is his face. I'd, I'd believe that. Him with a whole lot of stuff to make him look pink and gross on it. I think Brent Spiner did great. Top-notch yes. acting by yes. Brent Spiner. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think he did. He absolutely did. Mm-hmm. He is kind of the heart of this movie, weirdly. I also... Would say Roy Orbison is perfectly fine. <laughs> Roy Orbison is fine. I don't like that song, Oogie Boogie, or whatever it's called. I have no comment on that. Yeah, Pretty Woman is a much better song. Its its lyrics are Ubi Dooby Ubi Dooby Ubi Dooby 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 Ubi Dooby 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 Ubi Dooby Dooby. So it's rough. It's I'm there's a verse, but it's pretty much just that. Uh, so we have each brought a topic for discussion, sort of in this main segment here, and mine is the film's tension between exceptionalism and sort of the value of a collective. So there's a lot of, there's a lot happening here with the importance of individuals and particular societies and the superiority of those over sort of broad collectives. So I guess let's first talk about what exceptionalism is which is the idea that an individual or a nation or a moment in time or something like that or a species is pivotal or crucial to some event or events of the future or destiny or something like that. So only Zephram Cochran can exactly. trigger first contact. Only Zephram Cochran can do it. Only this Phoenix ship can do it. Um, and it usually implies that that thing is superior in some way. Like when we talk in the present day, American exceptionalism is very much a term uh, that is sort of about American ideas on on that our nation is best and is a special butterfly and it will never die because we have these qualities about us. We're also very steeped in this idea that history is a series of individuals doing important things instead of systems interacting and changing that have multiple causes to make things happen. Um, and, and one of the ways this really kind of manifests in our society is we talk about like rich and famous people doing a lot of things. <laughs> like we talk about Musk. Yeah. We say that Elon Musk made a spaceship. Right. We say he made a spaceship. We said he's making Teslas. It's like, no, he doesn't. He has an entire corporation of people if 2023 has taught us anything <laughs> it is that elon musk 
has made nothing. Elon Musk has apparently single-handedly destroyed Twitter, but that seems to be his yeah. only real individual accomplishment. Great, great job. But even then, he's not pressing the buttons. There are engineers pushing code, right? So this this stuff is also often very tied up in ideas of class and privilege and race and these sorts of things that make our society uh, troubling. So this movie in particular, I think, has some places where it struggles to balance like the broad value of humanity as a collective. Like mm-hmm. Picard talks about how there's no need for money in the future or wealth because everyone's basic needs are taken care of and humans collectively work for the betterment of humanity. And there's, what, 150 planets in the Federation, 8,000 light years of space, even though that's not quite how dis- volume works. <laughs> uh, like, there's these collectives, but we still have to have Cochrane, we still have to have Lily, we still have to have this first contact, this moment has to happen there's no other way (laughs) that the collective could get there yeah and even with the borg we get this this like introduction this is the first appearance of the borg queen which previously to this the borg had been a collective there was no one in charge of the borg and when like there's an episode where lore like takes control of some borg and it's Mm -hmm. considered like oh trey and and you know even even the humans are like how could you do this to the borg and then suddenly because we need someone to blow on data's arm in a sexy way we get the poor queen so you know it i mean it's really for someone to deliver dialogue right right they do retcon it they say that locutus did know the board king right. queen and that mm-hmm. picard no longer being locutus had forgotten her i guess yeah and like yeah that idea that like even the borg need a singular entity to provide direction and purpose which is the point of the board Mm. queen like the board don't have a democracy they didn't go for an oligarchy they went for a monarch like they're like we need you this one person (laughs) why did they go that route (laughs) uh when they have all the advantages of near instantaneous communication etc etc there's all these things in place that the board could stay something like a collective and decide upon Mm. direction and yet they can't um and so like picard having to be present for this entire thing at all they came all the way across the damn universe like they were at the neutral zone and they scooted all the way to earth (laughs) just because picard's information picard's knowledge which honestly not the most crucial really like I get why he wanted to be there, but, like... Mm-hmm. I mean, it turned out to be crucial, but it was pretty sus. I mean... It was pretty sus. Like, I have to be the one to be there. Um, mm-hmm. It all sort of feeds into this this problem that I think Star Trek at large has, this tension. Less of a problem, more of a tension. Between, you know, that acknowledgement that the Federation is a collective of worlds and societies, but also... We need these specialists performing colonialism <laughs> to make it happen, to push the technology, to get the workers where they're going to do the thing, right? Like, there have to be this just hyper-focus on those moments and those people. And you see it in every time travel episode and movie. And really, I mean, part of it is it's television, so, right? so there must be a cast that you yeah, give a shit you need, about. You need the characters. But, like, yeah, there's... 
for most of the series is the Federation headquarters is on Earth, and most of the people in Starfleet are human. And uh-huh. you just kind of, that's just kind of the way things are, and things are centralized in a way that's kind of contrary to what the characters say about what the Federation is. Exactly. I think it is, like, in some ways it's because, you know, it's narrative, right? And that's, you know, that's what people say, is that humans are storytelling animals. Hmm. And so it's, um, I think some people would argue it's sort of our inclination to make characters, right? When we imagine history, we're imagining it as a story, and so there's characters. Um, but I would point out that there is a juxtaposition to that, and that would be sort of the Asimovian vision, um, like, of psychohistory. Mm-hmm. You know, yes. like in the Foundation series, where you still have characters, but Asimov so um, particularly, like, I think makes it clear that those individual people are not that important to history, right? It's just they're the lens through which we're viewing those events. And mm-hmm. and Star Trek, despite having, I think, lots of Asimovian influence, doesn't <laughs> make that move, you know, to be able to imagine, like, the sweeps of human movement without being able to imagine those sort of individualized experiences as being crucially important and the, and the film kind of tries reaches towards that with zephram cochran who is like they're like hey it's the hero zephram cochran who's essential to the <laughs> the birth of the federation and he's like i'm not i'm just some guy who wants some money but then he sees the earth from space and turns into future hero zephram cochran basically mm-hmm. we never meet your heroes right yeah because <laughs> they, they could be drunk and try to dr- grope you at the bar <laughs> apparently oh poor troy also drunk, drunk troy is pretty cute drunk troy's a bad actor but <laughs> yes but it's a it's a fun comic moment like it's not believable yes. but it's no. it's cute i mean it's believable she's hot as fuck <laughs> <laughs> But she's not acting realistically, I think. Yeah. She's acting in a com- yeah. comedic way. I'll, I'll yeah. just have to take myself out of any conversations around Marina Sirtis's acting. <laughs> I think she's perfect. I have no notes. I think um, one last note I want to make that about this, this film and kind of where it sits in the Star Trek space is that before this movie came out, when the Borg had no queen and were purely uh-huh. a collective, that the link between being a hive mind and being quote-unquote mindless and being genocidal consumers of the universe felt very interestingly and neatly packaged. Uh-huh. There was collectivism, yes, but not that far, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but here, with the introduction of the Borg Queen, um, that whole thing just breaks down. Because now you have just another despot on a with a big tin can that can eat people. Mm-hmm. And here we are again with another villain, but a woman, right? Um, so I, don't, I think, like, I'm not going to say the Borg Queen is a bad idea. There are interesting things they do with the Borg Queen. There's interesting stuff we have not seen, the three of us on this call, that they do with the Borg Queen that I almost almost dipped into but um but i don't i do think that it complicates this idea of of the spectrum of collectiveness that star trek has has set before and it's in its various lines so yeah anyway uh 
Star Trek struggles with this. I think we're going to see this theme come up a decent amount where they get these lofty speeches about the future of humanity, but who's delivering them is the guy running the most elite Starfleet starship mm-hmm. <laughs> because he is the best captain ever. So, Yeah. I brought a topic that kind of explores a different axis of exceptionalism, which is this this films and Star Trek in general sort of preoccupation with destiny when it comes to time travel. Uh, every, basically every Star Trek time travel plot, including this one, has something has happened to time travel, something has happened to time, to history. And so when we time travel, we need to try and set things back the way they were. Right, this is coming from like, speaking of Asimov? Yeah, speaking of Asimov, Sound of Thunder? No, that's Roy Bradbury. Yeah, Ray Bradbury. <laughs> uh, which is like the one of the quintessential time travel stories, which is about a family who goes on a, on a, a temporal field trip, a tourist trip to the dinosaur times, and uh, someone steps on a butterfly and completely changes history and leaves themselves as, as different, and this is regarded as horrific. And, like, I totally believe that you go back in time in in first contact and if you don't stop the borg the borg take over but the point at which the story goes and also we need to make sure that this first contact event happens is sort of saying it's implying that we need things to happen the way they always have because our world is the best of all possible worlds mm-hmm. and star trek continually is like if you change history it will be worse like Mm-hmm. everything turned out the way it was supposed to be and that's that's good and this film really really wants things to happen exactly the same way right like if Zephyr and Cochran has died we're lost <laughs> uh if uh you know if if first contact doesn't happen now today then something will be different and it'll be okay right like they could say We'll save Zephram Cochran's life and then leave. And Zephram Cochran will fix his ship. You know, maybe we leave some supplies or fix anything that's that they can't fix with their level of technology. And then they'll do the work test next week. They'll miss the Vulcans showing up. But, like, eventually someone will notice that they've got warp travel and history will still happen, right? It'll happen mm-hmm. differently. But, and, I mean, I understand the personal motivations for this. Like... Picard wants to be able to go back home and visit his brother in a grape in a vineyard, right? Um, <laughs> they the Worf wants to get back to Deep Space Nine, and if if time shifts so that Deep Space Nine doesn't exist anymore, Worf won't be able to go back and and mac on uh, Trill. So that's that. That's weird, huh? <laughs> it's weird. They're they're the averting a genocide is pretty quickly not the primary yeah like as soon as they blow up the sphere the it's not the primary thrust of the story (laughs) right (laughs) yeah it becomes about this sort of secondary goal which like you said i get like if someone were like hey let's do something before you know that will potentially wash away the future I, I'd have some I'd have some thoughts and be like, well, you know, uh, but but we 
you would think that for Starfleet and their mission and the things these people are trained for, that once they fix the genocide part, they'd go back to tiptoeing around time travel concerns. Um, and instead, they're so fixated. I mean, I, they had actually had a callback to the episode with Mark mm-hmm. Twain. You know, the yes. reports of my assassination have been greatly exaggerated. Mm-hmm. And if you will recall, they're not big tiptoers around yes. the time this travel. Is, this is true. <laughs> so yeah. that is actually not out of character for That's, any of these people. You're right. You're right. <laughs> I'm, I'm struck by the fact that we have basically, uh, and I'm skipping an entire season of Picard here, uh, we have basically only three alternate ti- parallel timelines in star trek right that, that are long running we've got the core timeline we've got the uh the mirror universe that shows up in mirror mirror and and a bunch of other stuff that's like what if humans were evil and so that's clearly worse and then we've got the jj abrams universe um which is essentially inaugurated by the planet vulcan being destroyed at the start of of the movie um, and then there's three mm-hmm. movies in that, and everything else takes place in this quote-unquote prime timeline. Strange New Worlds might be an alternate timeline. We'll have to see. It's doing timey-wimey stuff. Um, but, like, Star Trek is saying if a if a timeline is important enough to be differing from ours, it is either disastrous or the 100% correct one. Yeah, or you get the the particular disasters like um enterprise c and yesterday's enterprise right like you get those sorts of uh sorts of things yeah and it's there's not a critical there's no discussion in universe among the characters who are ostensibly enlightened people there's no meta discussion (laughs) about what is happening on that front about like maybe we should be okay with time not changing right, like maybe there's so many factors here we should let it shake out <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah and it's weirdly not personally motivated because when they destroy the enterprise they're like it's totally fine for us to just live in secret and not just you know live in this time and not go back to our homes but it's horrible to think of our future never happening they definitely, now you're making me realize, I mean, they never take a uh, Marty McFly approach to <laughs> tweaking out the past to be, like, better, you know? Like, mm-hmm. maybe you can have a cool dad instead of a dorky dad, you know? Like, maybe on a larger scale, right? <laughs> you could warn people about the Borg, for uh-huh. example. And make it so that you never get turned into Locutus. Or you could, you know, there's all sorts of things you could do. You could say, you could just leave a note for Tasha Yar not to get sucked into that puddle and die. (laughs) Like, there's all sorts of things you could do. Yeah, Yeah, you get the Borg Queen kind of sums it up when she's crowing her victory (laughs) just before she gets killed. She's like, uh, watch your futures end. It's like, the future's still going to happen. There's still going to be a future. And at that point, they're, the Borg have kind of failed to... The Borg are probably going to fail to summon more Borg here. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. They, it's it's iffy. They have iffy, to build like, something, because the deflector... Yeah, they have, to, they have to take over the... I mean, they've got control of the ship at that point, so maybe they do it. But, like, the future is clearly the future of the Federation as mm-hmm. written. And that's, that's, that's yeah, weird. Yeah, a timeline that things 
gravitate towards, but requires an immense amount of work to make happen. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah, I guess speaking of versions and possible versions of the future, the thing I'm interested in talking about was something that caught my interest early in the movie, and that is the sort of sub-theme or maybe motif that you might have noticed about fantasy visions that reoccurs throughout the movie in a lot of really interesting ways. Um, It first caught my attention at the beginning of the movie. The song that uh, Picard is listening to is um, Berlioz, who is well known for the Symphonie Fantastique, which the plot of that is about this sort of um, fantastic version uh, of the world, sort of a, a creepy Uh, version fantasy version and then um, another musical connector is at the end because the the rock song that uh, Gregory alluded to in their (laughs) summary it was Steppenwolf's Magic Carpet Ride which is also about that that sort of idea about a fantasy a fantastic what is it I like to dream Yes, yes, right between the sound machine on a cloud of sound. I drift in the night. Any place it goes is right, goes far, flies near to the stars away from here. Um, that's Magic Carpet Ride by Steppenwolf. And the whole episode opens with a dream sequence, Yeah, it right? does. Picard having this sort of... And he's his memory, it's, I think it's really, it leaves us sort of unclear whether he is having nightmares or memories of his time as Locutus too, right? right. I don't think the film particularly clears that up for us. Seems like um, a... yeah, He wakes up once... And then finds that he's infested with the Borg and then wakes up again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which he always, he seems to sleep sitting up. He sleeps in recliners and office it's, chairs. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Or divans or something. It's, it's the it's most 90s television shit. <laughs> just people just perfectly <laughs> propped up when they sleep. <laughs> Uh, and I'll talk about it more in a minute, but the whole holodeck sequence, too, with the big goodbye is another example of that sort of um, fantasy mm-hmm. within a fantasy. And then if you notice, you'll actually see lots of scenes where there were reflections of things. Um, one of the very early scenes is Picard, and he's looking in out of a window, and you actually see Picard and then Riker behind him. Mm-hmm. So there's this constant idea of reflections and versions of things, which I was interested in. So so what I thought is maybe a useful way to think about this is with a really academic concept called figured worlds. And I actually broke out my dissertation for this shit, y'all. So <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> yeah, you've got to be useful for something. <laughs> so uh, uh, part of it, and I guess I'll stay this first, because um, part of it, and this really goes back to something that Lissa was talking about, is that tension between the collective and between, I don't know, something more individualistic in the movie. You know, I think that's a real tension. And this is kind of a way that was helpful to me to sort of resolve it, to think about, is this film saying, like, collectivism is not good, <laughs> or is it saying something else, right? <laughs> right. Uh, and I think it's it's tricky with the Borg in particular, because of the Borg collective, Um, So I want to talk a little bit about this concept of figured worlds. And I'm first going to give you a definition from Dorothy Holland. This book came out in 1998, only two years after Star Trek First Contact. Uh, (laughs) Fun fact. Yeah. So her book with her co-writers about figured worlds, and I can give the citation in the show notes. But her definition is 
they construe these social worlds or figured worlds as collective spaces in which humans believe. These spaces are socially constructed through shared beliefs. So it's about this idea that we construct worlds, right, through language, through interactions with each other. And they're real, right? They're real because we do co-construct them with each other. The examples in her book, uh, one of the big ones that I always remember is about AA, um, she tells the story when you get involved Alcoholics in Anonymous. Yeah, Alcoholics Anonymous. When you get involved in AA, you learn to talk the stories of AA. So everybody, like when somebody begins in AA, they might tell a story that doesn't sort of match the story. But the longer you're there, the closer your story matches the kinds of stories people tell in mm. AA. Mm. Uh, so that's one of her examples, among others. She's got lots of examples in the book. This is a soci- sociology approach. And there's another key term that I want to talk about, too, which she calls improvisation, which is improvisation is when you understand the rules of the social world, but you have to, in order to do something maybe that you need or want to do, you improvise around those rules. The example that she gives that's lodged in my brain is of a low caste woman in Nepal who the researchers want to interview. They're in Nepal. They're doing an interview with her. She arrives at the home of high caste people. The researchers are there staying with these high caste people and and they've invited her over for the interview, but she can't enter the home of the high caste people through the front door and they're not there to let her in. So she ends up scaling the wall outside of the building and entering through the second floor balcony in order to attend her interview, the sociologist with Dorothy Holland. And that's improvisation, right? When you don't change particularly the, the social rules, but maybe you invent some new way of being within those rules and structures. And it's really useful for talking about agency. And I thought this, uh, the big goodbye actually provides a little mini example, right? Because the holodeck, the world of the holodeck in this sort of, I don't know, what, what would that be the 1920s? 20s, 20s probably, yeah. yeah. yeah like sort of gangster 20s um, (laughs) that's from these books that Picard likes. So we see this world and it's a social world where people know how to act. And even the Borg apparently understand how the world works because Picard says, just act like this, smile, let's dance, right? Like as though that's enough, right? To convince the Borg <laughs> yeah. that, they're, that they're a part of this world successfully, I'll note, <laughs> in yep. the movie. Right. And then in an example of improvisation, Picard uses the machine gun. And I'm watching that and I'm like, why would this work? Why Why would this work? Why why would it work? But it does. It's an improvisation that that Picard uh, engages in, in this social world, in this figured world of the big goodbye. I think the the in-universe explanation, I think, is that projectile weapons tend to work against the Borg. Like melee attacks and like projectiles work. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so... Because the holodeck uh, safety constraints are off, the bullets are able to work, and they work better than a phaser because the Borg can't adapt their personal shields to just some metal showing up. Yeah, they definitely did give the reason why it it would work, but... Conceptually, it's it's like, why would this gun work and not this other exactly. gun? It felt... It was one of those scenes that did feel very contrived in the film. There, there are various parts of this movie that were like, oh, this feels like a movie for a broader audience. Like, we need to explain how this works. Uh, this whole... Ho- mm-hmm. All the action movie yeah, lines. Yeah, all the action. Assimilate right. this. And this holodeck thing felt like 
hey, we should have a holodeck show up in this movie. <laughs> so let's do this. And conveniently, the constraints will be off and, oh, we'll switch chapters partway through. And like, anyway, yeah, that, that whole that whole stretch was was odd. <laughs> You're welcome to all fans of First Contact. I've redeemed this scene personally all by myself because it's actually a part of the larger project of this film, which is about conveying these figured worlds. And I do feel, feel like it offers in some ways a little bit of redemption of the Zephyr and Cochran storyline too, because it actually reminded me a lot, the interactions that um, Jordi LaForge and Riker were having with him. There's a, a episode of a podcast called Invisibilia, where they talk about belief and the power of belief, which I think ties into figure worlds as well. If you believe in something, you really have an influence, like you impact other people. And, you know, they believe in him hard enough. You know, Jordy went to Zephyr and Cochran High School. They told him about the statue, right? And even quote his own line back at him. Uh, I love that part when he, Riker says that. And he said, who said that? And he said, uh -huh. you did 10 years from now, <laughs> right? So yeah, the line is, don't try to be a great man. Just be a man and let history make its own judgments. And Cochran says, that's rhetorical nonsense. <laughs> Well, he says, who said that? Oh, yes. yeah, no, you're right. He says, he rhetorical says that's rhetorical nonsense. nonsense. Who said yeah, that? And, and it turns that? out it's him. <laughs> you did. Um, so and I think, though, that's like this. Th that's what it is, though, right? Like they have called into being this kind of social world, right? Where they go to space, where they're able to do these things and be a part of this universe, which... I think, you know, Lissa really aptly pointed out the ways in which it falls apart in this film, but also the film, I think, really holds yes, on to that as much. well, right? This is the kind, this is the mm -hmm. world, right? This is the world that we're a part of. And that figured world of Star Trek, I thought was really strong in this film uh, and the pe people's belief in it, right? And belief in it as a possibility was so important. And I think that's why we have so much about fantasy and visions and like what is real and what is not real in the film, because I feel like it's say, I think it's really a strong argument for agency, but agency within collectivity mm -hmm. right that because because figured worlds don't operate it's not an individual yeah. right if you go to an aa meeting um it's not like you know you individually are doing aa you're a part of a group of people who are doing aa uh, or her other example is romance novels or in the movie the big goodbye everybody's dancing everybody's got a weird nose <laughs> right or a machine gun like it's a part of the world that you're experiencing and so I feel like this film is saying, if we all believe hard enough, mm -hmm. <laughs> right, in this version of the future, in this version of what it is to be a person, then it, then it's going to be real, right? And and I find that I don't know, I like that um, I like that sense of agency as a collective mm -hmm. that it offers to us. That's outside of what the Borg offer. It's a real sense of collective group agency. Yeah, there's there's an interesting line that I've got bolded in my notes that I think backs up what what you're saying, which is kind of at Picard's one of Picard's lowest points. This is uh, when he's out on a spacewalk. It's before he's gotten that really cool speech from Sloane where he realizes he's out for revenge, and he's walking with with Worf and Hawk on the hull of the Enterprise, and Worf is seasick or space sick, um, and Picard says, "Try not to look at the stars." keep your eyes on the hull mm -hmm. 
And at that moment, the whole screen rotates 180 degrees so that they're no longer have their heads pointed down, but have their heads pointed up and are walking on firm ground. And like, that's a moment where like Picard is saying, don't believe in visions. Don't imagine. Don't look at, he literally says, try not to look at these stars, Mm -hmm. which is saying, don't have a fantastical imagination. Just look at the material problem in front of you. Keep your eyes on the hull. Keep your feet on the hull. Um, and I mean, on one level, he's just saying, don't look down, <laughs> but on another level, like this is Picard at his, the, the movie portraying him, it basically is low point saying, don't believe in anything. Mm-hmm. And then when he comes to believe in things like friendship and, and saving people is when he's able to overcome and defeat the Borg. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> yeah. And when we, when we look at the collective vision of the Borg, their vision is to be perfect, become perfect. Uh, actually, quite unclear whether they are perfect yet or are working on getting there, right? Like that's a. I, I think they're pursuing perfection. Yeah. There's there's a line by Data where he says, "Believing one to be perfect is often the sign of a delusional uh-huh. mind," which is a reference to Lore, his brother oh. Lore, who thought he was per- a perfect android. Yes. And so Data has experience with an artificial or semi-artificial life form claiming to be perfect right and there's there's a there's a brutal simplicity to a drive for perfection that falls apart every time like that's that is what falls <laughs> apart about the borg uh, that is perhaps why they had to have a queen they had to break their own idea of a collective in order to have an individual stand out and what the federation etc what everyone who is in a borg <laughs> has <laughs> as a collective imagination is so much richer and more complex. Whereas one would think, you know, if, if someone were to say, we'll bring you into the whole, you will become part of us. Aren't we a great collective? In my tone of voice at a sentence, not automatically a terrible thing, but <laughs> we like, we like collective thoughts in, in certain ways. But when it becomes that sort of flattened and distilled and, unimaginative mm-hmm. they have no idea what they think mm-hmm. perfection looks like except partially cyborg partially organic yeah <laughs> they're hegemonic mm-hmm. they are all everyone should be one normal which is weird cyborg zombies it's what really pleased me about the film was the nuance in dealing with the idea of collective action or collectivity because you know um, I was really concerned about that. <laughs> like one of the few things I remembered about it was that there were Borg in it. And I was like, oh no, what's, what are they, you know, cause in a way it's kind of like saying, oh, let's not do a communism, you know, mm, we don't, you know, want to be like that. But this film wasn't saying that at all. Right. It was saying yeah. like a sort of monarchical, 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 mm, a hierarchical, I'll say that a hierarchical <laughs> authoritarian <laughs> version of collectivism of lockstep is not acceptable, mm-hmm. but a collectivism that is born from like a, a, a shared imagination and vision of the future is, is worth striving for. And yeah, I love that. That's one thing I love about Star Trek. With the main topics covered, it's time for a quick lightning round of the interesting things we spotted. So, one of the interesting things I spotted, and there are a bunch, like there are all sorts of really cool little cute things here for, for Star Trek fans, but um, from a sort of a, an interesting thing I spotted was 
we, we talked about it a little bit was the how loosey goosey they are about contamination of the timeline as mm-hmm. much as it's like we have to have the federation there has to be this first contact whatever but imagine like i would say maybe earlier star trek and their fixation on preserving knowledge don't touch anything don't leave your fingerprints behind but here we have yeah, the temporal prime, temporal directive, prime directive and stepping on butterflies right. and instead we have geordie stepping on to the onto the the this missile i guess that was the phoenix he was walking on and yeah it's it's a real missile missile silo that the phoenix yeah and he stands on it dramatically and he's like you will be looking in this direction and reaching for the stars and the statue this 20 meter statue we're gonna put this unreasonably (laughs) tall statue like they're just (laughs) giving away the farm they're quoting him things he's going Mm -hmm. to say which now of course he's going to say them and (laughs) he'll be quoting them quoting him uh <laughs> guys we should build this high school <laughs> <laughs> they're fixing part of the phoenix with 24th century technology right. uh barclay shows up in a in a brief cameo and is like should i repair this coil with such and such casing and it's like the correct answer is no right. because then you'd be giving them our technology right. um and i i thought it, i just thought it was funny and weird like it felt um inconsistent with some of the, I will say, stated philosophy. Because as Lucy mentioned, these people are messy as hell when it comes to the timeline in, in reality, oh, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, just go rewatch yeah. that Mark Twain two-parter and you'll be like, oh, these are some messy bitches. <laughs> yes. There's there's the implication maybe that, like, the universe itself tends to restore things back towards mm-hmm. the Star Trek timeline. Yep. Because, like surely there's a record in the history book somewhere of who went with Cochrane on that flight. And I mean, Lily will Sloan, Lily Sloan will play along, right? right? Because she knows everything. Yeah. Presumably she was one of the co-pilots. There's a, another seat there. Who was supposed to be right. in that did seat? And did they tell that person? Maybe they died, but yeah. like, then how do you explain that? Right. Um, and this, this makes me want to dust off my memory on the guardian of forever who I feel like might have some mm. degree of control over these things in terms of nudging, but I don't remember enough. Yeah, by the time of Discovery and the far future, the Guardian of Forever is a renegade for the Temporal Accords. Yeah. So the Guardian of Forever is is willing to change the timeline when it is forbidden elsewhere. I, I think they probably just recorded that third person as number one. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and it's just like, yeah, number one did it. And some guy with a beard. A great number one. I mean, honestly, he—I mean, he killed it. He is well practiced. Mm -hmm. He's been number one on the Enterprise for a decade. Can the man get another job, please? (laughs) But anyway, uh, so yes, I enjoyed and was constantly. It had my little, um, the little part of my Star Trek brain that wants to pull a, a very gentle cinema sins. You'd be like, ah, 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 ah. <laughs> yeah, do nitpicking yeah. stuff. I was like, wait, 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 wait. I owned <laughs> all the Nitpicker's Guide to Star Trek books that explained all the mistakes that they made in every single episode. Yeah. So much, much like with the Prime Directive, you know, with regards to warp civilizations and keeping them from falling off the faces of their own Earths, uh, they are not so great with time stuff. We we talked about some other. Uh, bits of star trek and i was struck watching this how weirdly in conversation this film is with other star trek works and other sci-fi in general mm-hmm. so like first 
this almost feels like the start of the Star Trek shared universe. Previously, you had, like, characters would sometimes come over from other shows, and you'd, like, a previous series would send off the next one. So, like, Picard appears in the first episode of DS9. Uh, Deep Space Nine is where Voyager sets off from. But this one, like, pulls in the holographic doctor the emergency medical hologram for for a scene for a cameo um and and you know Worf is stopping in and you even get like uh there's a there's a quick mention of of the leo constellation from cochran and that's where wolf 359 is which is the previous fight with the borg um is like in the leo constellation and like you get a cameo from neelix's actor so the maitre d (laughs) of the big goodbye film noir restaurant club is played by the actor who plays neelix mm-hmm. which is strange because if you watch voyager you watch that scene you're like that's neelix <laughs> that's neelix right there and it's it's so disruptive it seems like a great morale officer <laughs> yeah we get um we get references to other franchises uh star wars um the opening space battle feels very star warsy and uh they act the industrial light and magic is the special effects firm that did the special effects and you can see oh. the millennium falcon oh, in the shit. background in uh, one or two shots just real real small the kind of climbing through the jeffrey's tube and a lot of the borg queen stuff mm-hmm. is very clearly alien inspired um the they look very geiger-esque and that like climbing and passageways and getting jump scared and and finding people who you maybe have to mercy kill and so on that's very alien also um, also that boar queen very damp very yes. damp everything <laughs> is moist in a way that that everything in alien is you know the 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 nostromo and alien is just dripping water everywhere and you kind of get that with with the borg stuff i thought the slow motion stuff um when they were outside reminded me of things like um 2001 yes yeah, the whole stuff is absolutely 2001 inspired. They do the tricks with with going upside down and right side up, and you even can catch some thus spake Zarathustra Oof. like motif. The boom, 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 boom. That motif shows up in that music. It it, it plays when they are first coming out, and then it later plays um, in the Borg Queen confrontation. Um, but they're they're very clearly doing and there are there are 2001 references um like on the props and stuff and it's 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 aping the scene from 2001 where uh aping the scene uh, yeah not the ape scene but the scene where (laughs) the astronaut has to go out in space and like dismantle hal um is is very similar to when they're they're dismantling the deflector dish and someone's trying to stop them I think there's nothing scarier than like that slow motion outside in space horror like that's horror like getting knocked off into the into space and just like oh guess I'm gonna die out here yeah yeah so I I don't know it's it is weird how Star Trek usually feels so self-contained and this film does not feel self-contained this film feels like it's got connections to all sorts of stuff that even later you know even even the um now that it, star trek is treated as a capital s capital u shared universe um like lower decks i guess does a whole lot of that referencing but very little of the other shows do yeah it's true something that is maybe worth noting and maybe part of that is that like 
Ronald Moore. I don't know if he goes by Ronald Moore or Ron Moore, but like Ronald Moore is one of the writers on this. And hmm. he worked on ultimately like Battlestar Galactica. He worked on multiple Star Treks. Oh, okay. He worked on like he did Helix, which is a show you have referenced recently, Greg. Right. Uh, <laughs> uh, he worked on all sorts of things. And so I would imagine that like he can't write anything that isn't pulling from his experience, right? Of, of yeah. touching all these other films and shows and stuff like that. So, uh, so yeah, that's, that's probably part of it. For my, I know y'all thought that I was going to want to talk about bondage, and I did want to talk about bondage <laughs> because we can I, still talk about bondage. When I first talk about saw Data on the on the <laughs> board with his hands, you know, restrained, I was like, okay, we're we're doing a thing. Um, and then you get Picard like half unclothed and some bondage later like we're really leaning in on the bondage however i do have a better thing to talk about and that's misogyny oh. <laughs> okay. misogyny is better than bondage you've heard it here first dr arnold oh god <laughs> i think it's worth talking about i think the saving grace of this film is alfra woodard because if she were not oh. rocking it as lily this would be terrible uh i think Crusher and Troy are criminally underused. I think this is a mm-hmm. constant complaint in the movies anyway. Like they're just there. Um yep. and I think it I think it sucks hard. But I think the thing that really made it real for me was the revelation of the Borg Queen's motivation is to find a boyfriend. Yeah. I'm sorry, mm-hmm. but yep. come on, could you be power hungry or something? But you're looking for Oh, boyfriend. It's exhausting. I mean... <laughs> yeah, they, they frame it in some flowery language, but yeah. She mm-hmm. says specifically, I said, like, that was the whole goal with Locutus. A counterpart? <laughs> is that the word she uses? Yeah, she says counterpart. Actually, she Her t- other she, half. <laughs> she actually has, uh, speaking of allusions, she does an allusion to Macbeth um, when she says something about a partner. Because um, Lady Macbeth, reading a letter from Macbeth, uh, it reads, to my dearest partner in greatness. And I think... There's a clear reverberation of Lady Macbeth in her character, which frankly is even Mm. more misogynist. Um, So, I mean, I just, I wanted her, I wanted her to be a villain, you know, with motivations toward villainy um, to, you know, assimilate shit or something. And for it to be this just banal, like, Mm -hmm. my mind was blown, honestly, in that part at the end. And that also... And I loved, I, I love the sensual stuff. Like, the blowing on Data's arm. I, mean, I fucking love that part. I hated how she was like, was that good for you? Like, fuck uh-huh. off. Like, because it's like, mm-hmm. it is sexy, right? Like, it's sexy. Why are you making it, like... Performative? Yeah. Sexy? Like, you, ew, I just, I hated it. I hated, like, I did not, <laughs> her character, her character is irksome. And I think primarily it's because of that motivation. I think the revelation of her motivation was bad. And then when juxtaposed with the extreme poor use of Troy and Crusher, I think it's bad. I think the character of Lily is very strong. And Woodard is an excellent performer. Um, So that is helpful. Something that I was struck by when writing the summary is that, so Lily is kind of how she is referred to almost universally in the 
in the movie, her name is Lily Sloan. And Cochrane gets called Do- Cochrane or Dr. Cochrane. Most of the other people get referred to that as surnames, but Lillian and John Luke call each other Lillian John Luke. And and like it's weird that like like this woman is presumably also a doctor or maybe a grad student, right? It's it's she's she is the 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 right hand of Zephram Cochrane who designed a warp ship. And like she's the one who's on site to evaluate the damage and so on and yet kind of her role is just to be like the the person who doesn't know anything but i mean it might also be some massage noir here because like she is a black woman who is cast as like this this strong uh like physically strong character who's able to do the action movie stuff and then also like is able to give a good talking to to the white dude who's gotten carried away yeah. um and uh i love the character but i think yeah. that she's also reflects this weird like trouble giving women roles that aren't that are just the woman being cool if yeah. she had been a less powerful i think performer i think it would have been even mm-hmm. much worse <laughs> i think yeah. she brought a lot to the table that maybe the script did not <laughs> a lot of nuance she obliterates Jean-Luc Picard with five words. The There's this whole Captain Ahab, Moby Dick thing where she's like, you're oh, like yeah. Ahab, and he can just quote off the dome random line from Moby Dick, and she's like, what? I haven't read it. But he, <laughs> she, she goads him, he goes into a fit, he breaks the display case, and like, the scene's over. He's like, get out of my sight. And then she like wanders over, touches the ships, and is like, you broke your little ships and he like just shatters as a person and reforms into like oh oh you're right i am i am just a like i have monstrous motivations towards revenge it's a great great exchange so something that i loved about lily that might also play into the misogyny of the film is the way that this woman screamed like i do when there's a bug in my house when she yes. saw it was the best i, I felt it she's in my afraid soul. of the borg the it's borg so are scary and she's afraid of them it's, she's it's so also good. scared um when the door opens to to show earth there's two different yes. moments in this in this of people getting the overlook effect where you mm-hmm. see the earth from space and suddenly have a vision of your own insignificance this happens twice in the film and she, but she's like scared of falling out into space mm-hmm. uh, picard touches the screen and sloan like screams and screams and recoils back from the the force shield going Pzz. so on the one hand why does she have to scream at things but also a thousand percent relatable <laughs> she's having human responses she's having right. real responses to these scary things yeah i also just want to add and maybe i should have said this earlier but also about the board queen the fact that data tricked her like that uh, uh, yep. yeah he he tricked the person who gives you telepathy and hooks your brain into hers mm-hmm. so that she can understand everything you're thinking yeah like I mean, they did yep. acknowledge that he is legitimately tempted, and I appreciate mm-hmm. that for the, you know, 0.86 seconds that he is legitimately tempted, but... 0.68 seconds. Oh, thank you. For an android, that is nearly an eternity. 
Yeah. Is that the length of his orgasm? <laughs> no, that was much longer. <laughs> um, it felt longer. <laughs> but it was, um, I do feel like it's extremely reductive, you know, for her to be tricked in that way and for it to, mm-hmm. you know, the solidarity of Picard and Data. I don't know. It just, the whole thing. Uh, yuck. Especially, like, if you zoom out and are a Star Trek nerd about it, the Borg Queen has existed for hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. Hundreds of years. Reincarnated when needed. Protected. You think in such three-dimensional terms. Such how small terms. you've become. You learn in Picard, I think, that the Borg Queen can sense the collective through other branches of time. Mm-hmm. Like, and data data is like the the android who learns to lie during this movie <laughs> yeah is like assimilate this like what <laughs> he said resistance oh. is futile resistance is futile the other yeah, one assimilate this is wharf yeah yeah mm-hmm. uh, that was completely fine i have no notes <laughs> i think it was corny as shit <laughs> yeah <laughs> i love wharf <laughs> So, in addition to the deep stuff, we're also big Star Trek fans. So, let's head to Tin Forward to talk about the stuff we geeked out about. Um, I'm going to start with LeVar Burton's face. Because when (laughs) I saw it for the first time, I made a little ee! Because I was so excited. I had totally forgotten that he didn't have his visor anymore uh, in this film. Um, You know, he wore the visor all through the series. And... Uh, he has the, um, I guess the, uh, devices on his eyes now, and they actually are cooler than regular eyes because he can like see heat and stuff. So, so quick question. Do we think those are robot eyes or do we think that he has contact lenses in, in universe? I believe them to be robot eyes, but. Okay. That's, that's how I, I read it. I thought they were implants or eyes. Yeah. Yeah, and he, uh, there's an episode, there's at least one episode where he takes the visor off. There's several episodes where he takes the visor mm-hmm. off, and his, his eyes are normally, or normally, his birth eyes are milky white. Yeah. So, Correct. yeah. Hmm. Um, anyway, I think LeVar Burton is wonderful. Long time reading Rainbow fan here <laughs> and lifelong reader because of LeVar Burton who I continue to do to adore today in 2023 so shout out for getting to see his beautiful face and uh mm-hmm. his him getting to be Jordy without having to wear the visor which my understanding was really uncomfortable for him um yeah so yeah I was just super thrilled <laughs> he tried to get them to do that for generations the previous movie and uh it didn't end up working out so I'm glad he was able to do it here yeah, I love it. My brief fan thing is that Data is still out here, 10 plus years into working on the Enterprise, <laughs> still asking basic ass questions about why humans do things. Mm-hmm. Why did you touch the Phoenix? Oh, because it makes it more real. It's like, oh, puts his hand on it. How many, how long st- stay you, Data, asking dumbass questions? We didn't we didn't even talk about the touch metaphor oh, or motif running through this. Yeah. Data's like, oh, it's human to touch, and then he gets skin put on him, and yeah. then it, he, when he ends up saving everyone, his skin gets burned off, and so he's giving that up and all that. What I would love to find out is that all this time, anything after 
let's say, second season of Next Gen. Because mm-hmm. Data was a serving, like, officer before the Enterprise, right? Mm-hmm. After second season Next Gen, I want each of these questions he asks that are really, really basic things about how humans experience the world, I want him to actually be collecting survey data. I want it to be the fifth time he's asked mm. a different person <laughs> and, yes. and is collating responses instead of so many years after knowing these people who keep models in their office and on their desk and who have, they probably have fidget cubes and my man plays instruments. He's he's met cisco who is constantly fondling a baseball and asking why do you touch things like come on man i mean data's data fucks data fucks and he's like what's the point of touching he's fully functional but that's not the same thing as fucking (laughs) well he found out and i think we all know that i don't know that yar can have sex with someone and not fuck so i'm pretty sure data also fucked there i am pretty sure that yar fucks I'm not sure that Data oh. fucks. Now, maybe Data fucked the board queen. Definitely that I mean, happened. Definitely that happened. Yeah, for sure, for sure. <laughs> well, she fucked him. It's unclear how, how it went the other way. I mean, metaphorically. <laughs> I, as someone who struggles to recognize and name emotions, I deeply relate to Dana in this movie when he's like, oh, anxiety, this sucks. Like, yeah, yeah, it does. And then the dream of just being able to... Let him just turn it off. He did have to nod his head a certain way to turn off the emotion chip. Sometimes Mm -hmm. Star Trek is so 1960s. (laughs) It's delightful. That, that, uh, the, the way that the deflector dish has this just this big cable that finally has to be cut <laughs> in order to stop it from sending its thing uh, is is interesting. But all the 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 like prop and costume work and stuff in this movie, I really, really mm-hmm. like this was one of the last Star Trek movies before there was heavy, heavy use of CGI. I feel like I feel like uh, Insurrection probably had a lot more CG in it. Mm-hmm. And uh, everything here is, like, really manual and cool and mm-hmm. chunky. Um, there's a scene where they're like, we need to get into engineering. We're going to do the the manual release. And they, like, open up a panel, get a lever, and they pull it. And it, like, breaks off mm-hmm. because the door is board locked somehow. And it's like, that. Uh, a, that wouldn't happen, right? right? If, if someone's broken a lock, it doesn't make it so that the handle is weaker. <laughs> but also, like, yeah, that is what happens, right? You pull the handle and nothing happens. It's just not connected anymore. Um, the uh, the Borg outfits are very, like, chunky and physical to the extent that, like, you can recognize, like, which museum store they got the various <laughs> kitbash parts from. Like, there's there's one real prominent thing in the spacewalk scene where the Borg has, like, a, a shimmery eye that clearly just has, a like, a holographic sticker on it. Uh... It's just one of those stickers that, like, you put on your notebook mm-hmm. when you were a kid yeah. that's, like, cool and shimmery and rainbow. <laughs> it's just there. Um, but, like, all, all of the... The, the Borg outfits having chunky parts to them. Mm-hmm. The the costumes are are all like quilted, fabricy. All the people in in Montana, the the you know Cochran's group, which <laughs> that town looks post apocalyptic to does. me. But I don't think it is. It is like it's post apocalyptic in the sense that it's post World War Three. Mm-hmm. But like 
I don't think this is a survivalist encampment. I think that I think Cochrane's got funding from somewhere, right? Like oh, Cochrane's mm, yeah. doing a research project. Yeah. Um, you mentioned the quilted outfits. I just wanted to give a little teeny shout out to Picard's <laughs> grandpa vest because mm-hmm. I was very charmed by it. Oh, I want to point out LaForge's boots. When he steps up on that ship to be like, here, here's what you look like as a statue. His boots mm-hmm. are the most practical shoe wear that has ever been in a Star Trek show in 75 years. I didn't see them. Are they like New Balance no, ass No, they're boots? like big and thick and chunky <laughs> and they like, they lace up and it, they look like fucking boots that someone who works and is doing labor would wear. It's the most, they're not shiny ship boots. They're not like fancy footwear. Like their clothing is way too clean to be fitting into this post-apocalyptic dust bowl setting. But his mm-hmm. boots on point, hundred percent. I want to see Jordy in those boots all the time. It's great. And and all the all the Montanans are in like warm clothing and like layers of wool mm-hmm. and and knit like naturalistic fabrics contrasted to the quilted nature of of the the outfits that the the Enterprise crew are wearing. Um, there's carpeting in the Enterprise E uh, oh, that's yeah. really. Uh, it's noticeable in the weird action scene, which has like doom sound effects going <laughs> off and bad slow motion. That that when when Data gets kidnapped, um, like you see the corporate carpet scorched, and like, and then like the the Borg slowly Borg stuff slowly taking over, um, like tends starts to replace some of that warm textile stuff with the with the black gleaming metal. The uh, we mentioned the Phoenix is in an actual missile silo. Like literally, that the Phoenix prop, the Phoenix prop, is sitting on top of a decommissioned nuclear warhead. <laughs> like they are in a missile silo Whoa. for real, and and that's cool. Yeah. The uh, the the chunkiest bit, my favorite little bit of of prop work in the film, are the um, the controls to release the deflector dish. Uh, which might be a reference to the controls for the Genesis device from Wrath of Khan, um, which has a similar, like, metal pops up and then you have to push it back in and do controls. But, like, in order to, 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 to make this deflector dish release, you have to, like, do a bunch of keypad stuff and, like, enter some codes. And then you grab this, like, big chunky handle and pull this, this, like, metal disc out and then like rotate it 45 degrees and ka-chunk put it back into a different slot Mm -hmm. and that like releases the pins or whatever (laughs) that hold the deflector dish on and like that bit of prop work is like they built that Mm -hmm. there's a real heavy metal i mean there's probably one and not three but like there's a real metal thing the actors are moving ka-chunk to make that happen and like for a film which is very flashy and interested in like time travel and history and illusions and dreams and having like the everything very granted physically is really cool does anyone have other stuff that didn't get pulled up i i have one little thing since i've i've been on a, a data kick i have in my notes that data is is kidnapped at 36 minutes into the movie and we mm-hmm. can, I, I will only say that that initial credit sequence was almost three minutes long of just names flying by the screen. Mm. So subtract that off or whatever. 36 minutes 
Data is kidnapped. Nobody asks about his ass until um, one hour, 24 minutes, and 30 seconds. <laughs> Everybody's like, he's fine. Is that, he, he, no one cares about him until he does his Zelda telepathy no! and Bill Picard's head? He's like, come find me. No one cares. He's out here getting his arm blown on. <laughs> like, <laughs> as far as my notes have, no one's worried about Data particularly. Yeah, I don't, no one's like, oh, Data died. That's yeah. bad. No one's worried that the person with the encryption keys is caught by the Borg? I know we <laughs> talked about it early on, but Brent Spiner really is very good. Like, that scene when he gets hurt he for the so first well. time. Like, I thought his oh, performance yeah. was just yeah. really strong. Like, is outstanding. He's like this cool badass. He's like, I'm bulletproof. I showed it earlier in the film. And then, like, it, it just looks like he gets... I mean, the cut's decently bad, but it's just like a yeah. graze. Like, he dodges this swing of a board claw or something, and it just, like, clearly is just catches him in sharp pain. It's a, it's, mm-hmm. it's a great moment. Like, well-performed. And him r- trying to rip the skin off is, yeah. ugh. Rough. Yeah. Uh, I'll just shout out, probably my tiny little favorite thing in the whole thing is... Um, in the very beginning, when Worf shows up on the Defiance and <laughs> is trying to do a thing, and Picard is all like, no, I'm here to fuck up your plan one more time. Because <laughs> you know how always, always on um, Next Generation, Worf comes up with a plan and Picard says, no, <laughs> that's not what we're doing. <laughs> like every single time. And so they have to put it in the movie. Worf has the plan, uh, no. <laughs> I guess my one little note is that the the Vulcan ship. So th- I think this is a reveal, right in the in the movie that the first contact of Earth was from Vulcans. I think it's treated as such. Like they don't say Vulcans. They, they're like aliens show up. They're not like aliens from a planet called Vulcan. Um, and so, like when the Vulcans step out, I feel like is the first time in the film, at least we get we get like, oh, it's Spock's people. I just, yeah. I feel like that was already part of the historical record, but yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, for all I know, I read it in a Star Trek book, right? Like, yeah. now I don't know. Damn. Hmm. But that, that ship, their ship is cool and like is both Vulcan in feel. It's triangular, but it, it uh-huh. also kind of looks like a flying saucer, which is neat. And then like the, I think, so there's there's a very gorgeous shot when the, door opens and like the it, there's this door that sort of sp- has a horizontal split in it and the top and the bottom the top goes up and slides into the ship and the bottom goes out and turns into a ramp and i mm-hmm. think that's a stop motion shot that it looks like a stop motion oh. shot they do where like they've got presumably green screen trees behind it because the trees are like blowing in the wind and then they like that the way that that pulls out looks stop motion to me and not not mechanical um, but it's just like that. That's a cool ship. Yeah. I'm ready. I'm so excited. Oh, the reveal. Oof. <clears throat> right. So at the end of each episode, we pick the thing we're watching uh, based on a connection from this episode. And I, I, I picked it. It's me. <laughs> um, <laughs> So this episode had time travel and a particular oh kind of time travel 
that is later called the Pogo Paradox. What? Because the Pogo Paradox is a causality loop where interference to prevent an event triggers the event. Oh, no. So that that term is mentioned in Voyager's Season 5, Episode 24, called Relativity. Hell yeah. So hopefully it will be good. <laughs> it seems to, uh, to be a well-liked episode. I don't remember it very much. I remember nothing about it. <laughs> You'll remember it when you, when you start watching it for sure. Uh, it is a Seven of Nine episode. <gasps> I love Seven. That's also not <laughs> the first time they do that in Voyager. One of my favorite episodes of Voyager is the one where they uh, try to... They accidentally destroy a planet by phasering a power conduit and the whole episode mm. never happens oh voyager like most <laughs> of voyager did not happen like yeah they did the like, temporal loop a bunch you remember the one about the ship it's see it's one of the ships is not right <laughs> <laughs> hell's, hell's, hell's ship or something one of the ships is not right is also the premise for a lot of episodes of star trek uh we've spent the last month saving our thoughts on this movie for the pod and it's gonna be so hard not talking yeah. about all of voyager's time travel stuff for the next oh month. my god uh so yes and it is uh it can be found paramount plus any of the places where you can find voyager to be watched so next time we'll be discussing relativity from voyager season five on before the future came you can find links and show notes at beforethefuture.space if you have questions or comments, comment there or write us at onscreen at beforethefuture.space. I am Melissa Avery Weir, and you can find me at urson.net or on Mastodon as melissa at urson.life. I'm Gregory Avery Weir, and you can find my website and blog at ludusnovus.net or uh, you can find me on cohost at cohost.org slash G-A-W. And I'm Lucy, and I blog at intertextualities.com. Our music is Let's Pretend by Josh Woodward, used under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. Thank you for listening. <sighs> I think that turned out well. Live happily ever after, surrounded by butterflies, children, and laughter. It's a fairy tale story, so let's just pretend. Hallelujah, amen, it's the end. Happily ever.